Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, November 30th through Tuesday, December 5th, feature guest conductor Michael Tilson Thomas and pianist Orion Weiss. The program includes six German dances by Mozart, as well as the same composer's Piano Concerto No. 23. After intermission comes the Arnold Schoenberg orchestration of Johannes Brahms' Piano Quartet No. 1. Here are Philip Huscher's program notes on Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 23, a work lasting about 26 minutes. From 1782, the year after he moved to Vienna, until 1786, Mozart wrote 15 piano concertos. That's an incredible outpouring of important music, and it corresponds precisely to Mozart's heyday as a performer. These concertos were his main performing vehicles, as well as his primary source of income, and time has placed them among the crowning glories of all music. There's little else in all Mozart's output aside from the great operas to compare with the magnificence, subtlety, and consistent brilliance of these scores, and in no other works did Mozart so ingeniously merge the symphonic, operatic, and chamber music styles into a uniquely personal language of expression. In the winter of 1785-86, Mozart wrote three piano concertos while he also worked on The Marriage of Figaro. This was the most productive period of his life, and the only reasonable way to explain the enormous and varied output of these six months is to assume that the intense work on the complicated musical and dramatic structures of Figaro set his mind racing with more ideas than a single four-act opera could contain. It's been suggested that the purely mechanical task of writing it all down would produce only six full pages per day. Neither that challenge nor the infinitely greater one of conceiving so much glorious music appears to have inconvenienced Mozart in the least. Throughout the winter, he kept to his regular routine of teaching and performing while also maintaining a full social calendar. The only activity that seems to have suffered was his correspondence, so we have only a sketchy account of his daily life at the time. Mozart entered the A major piano concerto, careful listing 488, in his catalog on March 2, 1786, only a month after the one-act comic opera The Impresario, just three weeks before the famous C minor concerto, the catalog 491, and less than two months before The Marriage of Figaro. Although it's not documented, Mozart probably performed the A major concerto at one of the Vienna Lenten concerts a few days after finishing it. This and the other two concertos of the Figaro winter are the first in Mozart's output to call for clarinets. Sketches show that Mozart started writing this A major concerto as early as 1784 with oboes instead. Mozart begins as if he were following the conventional recipe for a classical concerto, which is totally unlike him. But then, after a few pages, he proceeds to ignore nearly every subsequent instruction. The result is the kind of risky, though not reckless, creation known only to the greatest chefs and composers. The tone of the entire movement is generous and warmly lyrical, although, as in the duet in the same key between the Count and Susanna in Act Three of Figaro, there's still room for mischief, doubt, and the thrill of imminent danger. Mozart marks the slow movement adagio instead of the more common andante. What he has to say cannot be rushed. 
This magnificent and justly famous music stands alone among all Mozart concerto movements, not only because of its tempo or key, it's his only work in F-sharp minor, but also because it unlocks a tragic power that won't surface again in music until Beethoven. The wind writing is particularly expressive, and the piano solo is as simple and haunting as any slow aria. Even in Figaro, with its celebrated mixture of laughter and tears, there's scarcely a moment that plunges so deeply into the heart. The finale, a buoyant and delightful rondo, brings us back to A major, and after the adagio's revelations, it sounds like the happiest key on earth. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Mozart's Piano Concerto Number 23. And now on to the Arnold Schoenberg orchestration of Johannes Brahms' Piano Quartet Number 1, the performance time around 43 minutes. Arnold Schoenberg was 22 when Brahms died. Both men, the revered master and the young prodigy, were members of the Vienna Composers Association. Although they did not know each other, we're not even certain if they ever shook hands, Schoenberg was poised to become Brahms' true heir and to carry his legacy into the next century. Early in 1897, only weeks before Brahms died, Schoenberg began his first string quartet, a sumptuous work in D major. Alexander von Zemlinsky, a promising young musician and a friend of both men, showed the score to Brahms, who was impressed, or at least intrigued, by the music and asked about this man unknown to him. Zemlinsky explained that Schoenberg had been working as a copyist and arranger in Vienna to make ends meet. Brahms at once offered to provide a stipend so that Schoenberg could study at the conservatory. But when Zemlinsky presented the offer, the proud young composer turned it down. Forty years later, when Schoenberg had become famous not for following in Brahms' footsteps, but instead, in public opinion, for squandering his inheritance and trashing the great Viennese tradition, Schoenberg orchestrated the master's G minor piano quartet, a gesture of honor, homage, and love. To many, it also looked like an attempt at reconciliation, although Schoenberg passionately believed that he had not shown any disrespect for Brahms and his tradition, that he had never written a note of music that Brahms would not have understood. Shortly after Brahms' death, Schoenberg struck out boldly on his own, even as early as Transfigured Night, a richly chromatic string sextet written in 1899. He appeared to be following in Wagner's rather than Brahms' footsteps, and over the next decade he carried music to a point beyond the vision of either of his predecessors. After his invention of the 12-tone system in the early 1920s, Schoenberg was regularly accused of overturning the great tradition of Western music. In 1933, for the centenary of Brahms' birth, Schoenberg wrote a now-famous essay, Brahms the Progressive, that not only demonstrated his forerunner's far-reaching innovations in musical language, harmony, phrase structure, and rhythmic development, but also implied that Schoenberg had merely picked up where Brahms left off. It was Brahms, Schoenberg insisted, not Wagner, who had pointed the way toward an unrestricted musical language. He would have been a pioneer if he had simply returned to Mozart, Schoenberg wrote, but he did not live on inherited fortune. He made one of his own. Words that now might well be applied to Schoenberg himself. 
Four years later, in the spring of 1937, Schoenberg undertook an orchestration of Brahms' first piano quartet, linking his name by the hyphen on the front of the score, if not by deeper musical affinity, with that of his beloved ancestor, and by implication with the procession of names to which he felt he now belonged, Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, and Wagner, the men he once rightly called his teachers. Schoenberg had known Brahms' chamber music since his youth, and he often had played either the viola or cello parts of these great works with friends. The early G minor piano quartet was one of his favorites, although he was always frustrated that he could not hear everything he saw on the pages of the score. By 1937, Schoenberg was a master at transcribing music for orchestra. Early in his career, he had arranged countless operetta tunes to make a living, and more recently he had made magnificent transcriptions of Bach's organ works. From the Bach project, he had proved how, in the translation from keyboard to full orchestra, ironically, one could achieve greater clarity. Our sound requirements do not aim at tasteful colors, he wrote at the time. Rather, the purpose of the colors is to make the individual lines clearer. And this is very important in the contrapuntal web. We need transparency that we may see clearly. In the case of Brahms' piano quartet, Schoenberg was especially aware that the piano often drowned out the strings, and in reassigning the lines of Brahms' music to the full orchestra, he was careful to redress that balance. Schoenberg eschews the obvious and naive idea of leaving Brahms' string parts to the orchestral strings and letting the winds and brass take over the piano music. Schoenberg's orchestration is a marvel of ingenious and savvy planning, betraying at every turn his craftsmanlike knowledge of the orchestra from the inside out. It's as if a great painting has been touched by the hand of a sensitive restorer, shedding new light on familiar shapes, brightening colors, and sharpening contrast. Schoenberg is always faithful to the original. He does not touch up the notes of Brahms' score as he goes. He merely adds color and weight. Schoenberg later referred to this score as Brahms' fifth, implying that he had merely brought the inherent symphonic nature of this music to light. The remark recalls Robert Schumann's comment, made nearly a century earlier, that he heard veiled symphonies in the young Brahms' piano music. Despite the integrity of his approach, Schoenberg calls for an orchestra Brahms himself never used, beginning in the very first measure with an E-flat clarinet and bass clarinet that do not appear in any Brahms score, and later calling for sizable percussion. In his four symphonies, Brahms allowed nothing more than a single triangle in the fourth. Still, Schoenberg's orchestration is purely in the spirit of Brahms, despite its little anachronisms, which Schoenberg handily dismissed, claiming that he had done nothing that Brahms himself would not have done if he lived today. The true mark of Schoenberg's achievement is that, without changing a single note in Brahms' score, he has managed to reveal new truths about the original work. In the first movement, for example, Schoenberg refuses to orchestrate a repeated passage the same way twice. What was mere repetition in Brahms becomes development here. And in the development section, where Brahms wrote a rapid-fire dialogue between piano and strings, dramatic in its black-and-white repartee, Schoenberg produces instead a continual unfolding of shifting orchestral colors. The movement is also enhanced and even transformed by the addition of cymbals, triangles, and bass drums. 
Schoenberg's light-as-a-feather orchestration of the second movement makes something surprisingly dramatic of Brahms' gentle intermezzo. In the middle section of the following slow movement, Schoenberg provides all the fire and brilliance of a real military band where Brahms had only mimicked one. In the finale, which Brahms marked a la Zingareza in the gypsy style, Schoenberg makes something hair-raisingly explicit of the composer's original intent, throwing in the tambourine and xylophone and luxuriating in the kind of orchestral effects that Brahms suggested but never used. The lasting impression of the entire score is that it is neither pure Brahms nor characteristic Schoenberg, but instead a meeting of two peers, different but utterly compatible. Program notes by Philip Huscher on the Arnold Schoenberg orchestration of Johannes Brahms Piano Quartet No. 1. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.